the author of Hebrews, he has before him this sad situation in which some of his audience found themselves. They were contemplating to leave Christ, but he took upon himself to teach them about the excellencies found in the priesthood of Christ. He said, I will do that if God permits. So he acknowledged God that everything he wants to do, God is sovereign over it. But I think I'm going to do this in a, like a few parts. So let's start with verse 4. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance since they are crucifying crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up to contempt. For the land that has drunk the rain that often falls on it and produces a crop useful for, to those for whose sake it was cultivated receives a blessing from God. But if it bears thorns and thistles, it is worthless and near to be cursed, and its end is to be burned. Though we speak in this way, yet in your case, beloved, we feel sure of better things, things that belong to salvation. For God is not unjust to, so as to overlook your work and, to, and the love that you have shown for, the, for his name in serving the saints as you still do. And we desire each one of you to show the same earnestness to have the full assurance of hope until the end so that you may not be sluggish but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So this passage of Hebrews is one of the most controversial passages of Scripture. And I was wrestling with the passage and today I'm going to kind of present a few um, views, how people see this passage and, um, and what conclusion they came to. But before I do that, I want to uh, kind of give you an outline. I came up with this outline. I look at multiple um, uh, books and commentaries. They have different outlines, but this kind of helped me in, um, as we plow to this text, we, 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 we can have this mental picture, this structure, and we can understand the, the passage. Chapter 6 is really a good and encouraging chapter if you can draw the truth that are in this chapter. But also, I have seen, I have heard Christians that when they read this passage, they fall like in fear, like good Christian. They read, they read Hebrews 6, 4 to 6, and it's like, it's not with it is impossible. It's, talk about, it's talking about falling away. And we read all these things. They are all good things, like tasted the, the word of God and partakes in the, they partake in the uh, Holy Spirit. It's, and people come like, hey, falling away? But hopefully uh, this can help you. So this is my outline. I have four, I say, parts, if you would say. Um, verse 1 through 3 is the goal. 4 to 8 is the warning against apostasy. 9 and 10 is the hope or the assurance. We can also see the, the satisfaction of the author of Hebrews in there. Um, and 11 to 20, it's the encouragement to persevere in faith and holiness. So last time... I was here, we, we looked at verse 1 and 2. And so that's, that would be the first part. That would be the goal. The author of Hebrews is laying at the goal here. Having left behind the teachings of the Christ, let us move on to maturity. Yeah, therefore, let us leave the elementary doctrine of Christ and go on to maturity, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works 
and of faith toward God and of instruction about washings, the laying on of hands, the resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. I showed you that this is talking about old covenant image, so to speak, or teachings. Dead works, we find the definition in the book itself. Um, Brother James Jennings and also Wayne Grudem, um, as I was doing this, he did the same thing. It's like, try to find all these definitions in Hebrews itself before you go out. And, and you're going to see, um, hopefully, maybe today or next time, um, how Christian has reason to rejoice um, because of there's promises, there's assurance. But uh, the dead works we saw, they were the, the blood of goats and bulls. People would say, like, it's the un- self-righteous deeds of Christian these days. But in, in the context of Hebrews, it's the blood of goats and bulls. The second one, faith toward God. We have this whole chapter, chapter 11, where we, we have, a, they call it the, the hall of faith. We have all those heroes of the faith. By faith, they did so and so, uh, this and that. Um, but they were old covenant people, right? All of them, they're in the Old Testament. Instruction about washings. Only the blood of Christ can efface the guilt and purify our conscience. The washings prescribed in the law cannot do that. And we saw that again in chapter 9, chapter 10. Um, the laying on of hands, it has to do with when you offer a sacrifice, you put your hands on the head of the animal and confess your sin. But really, that never cleans your sin. Over and over again, you need to come back and ask for forgiveness. Leviticus 3 says, when someone is offering a sacrifice, this is what he says, and he shall lay his hand on the head of his offering and kill, and kill it at the entrance of the tent of meeting. Um, the resurrection of the dead. People, they had this no- notion that on the last day, the dead will be raised. John 11, when uh, Jesus told Martha, Lazarus will raise again. She said, Yes, I know he will rise again on the last day. So you see, they already have this notion, yes, there's going to be uh, a resurrection of the dead. In, even in Hebrews 11, we have the dead. Um, people, uh, they get back again, they're dead. Uh, this mother received back again her dead. Abraham believed that God would raise, could raise Isaac from the dead. So they have this notion of resurrection of the dead. And Jesus, he corrected Martha's view, and he says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he dies, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Revelation 20, verse 6 says, Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. So there is one, there is a first, there is a second. Depends on your eschatology. I'm not going to go into that. debate yet, but, but there is a resurrection of the dead. Um, and eternal judgment. This verse, I always use it uh, when, when we go um, evangelize. Um, Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes 12, 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. But in the New Testament, we see that Christ will render judgment. In the Old Covenant, they didn't know that. Christ says in John 5, For the Father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the Son. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5.10, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. So those are things that they um, comparing the old and the new. Again, before I go to verse 3, let me read this um, quote from E.W. Pink. The Hebrews had confessed their faith in Christ and by so doing had forsaken the shadows 
for the substance. But hope had been deferred. Faith had waned. Persecutions had cooled their zeal. They were being tempted to abandon their Christian profession and return to Judaism. The apostle shows that by so doing, they would be laying again a foundation of things which had been left behind. Rather than this, he urges them to be carried forward to perfection or full growth. That meant to substitute repentance unto life for repentance from dead works. To substitute, I lost my way here, trust in the glorified Savior for a national faith, in, uh, faith toward God. The all-cleasing blood of the Lamb for the inefficacious washings of the law. God's having laid on Christ the iniquities of us all for the Jewish high priest laying on of hands. A resurrection from the dead for a resurrection of the dead. Of, from. The judgment seat of Christ, which is sometimes called Bema, for the eternal judgment of the great white throne. Thus, the six things um, here mentioned belong to a state of things before Christ was manifested. So that was the goal. The goal is like, these things, they belong to the old covenant. Leave them behind because you need to move on to maturity, to Christ. Christ is the substance. Christ is um, perfection. Now, verse 3. It's really short, but I was able to be encouraged by it. And this we will do if God permits. This we will do. What is this, this? In simple words, going on to maturity and growth. It's like we will grow. We will go on to maturity and growth. We will leave um, that task of laying the foundation um, and go on to maturity. The simple sentence teaches us three things. I have to keep track of the time. The first thing is reliance on God. The second thing is humility. And the third one, the sovereignty of God. What the Chris was talking about, um, the providence and the decrees of God. Um, but yeah, he's, go, he's going to teach the, his, audience, <clears throat> his audience, but he does it in subordination to Christ. He submits himself to Christ. I want to do this if God permits. So he does not presume on the grace of God, but declares that he can only carry out this mission of teaching them and them learning from him only by the help of God. And same thing apply applies to us today. When I stand here, when Brother Chris, Brother Jason stand here, we, we can only tell you the oracles of God only if God helps, if God permits. So he is showing his complete reliance and dependence of, on God. The second one, he uses pronouns like us or we. Let us leave. And this we will do if God permits. So he kind of include himself in their bunch, kind of showing his humility. Kind of give you the idea in Matthew 7, um, when you're bringing a rebuke to a brother, you need to first examine yourself. Remove the log from your eye first before you remove the speck from your brother's eye. Paul said something similar in um, Philippians 3.12. Where he's like, uh, he's pressing on the goal. And in, in 16, he said this um, Let us keep living by that same standard to which we have attained. What did he attain? It's righteousness in Christ. But Paul has reason to boast. He's like, he's the, he's the apostle Paul, right? But he said, Let us live together. There is this idea of, I'm not greater than you. So there is this humility aspect of, we will do this if God permits. 
The third one is the sovereignty of God. He acknowledges that God is sovereign over all things, even the growth of the Christian. Even going into maturity, God is sovereign over all this. And, and we likewise, we must submit whatever we do in life to the sovereignty of God, to his authority and his good pleasure. The author of Hebrews, he has before him this sad situation in which some of his audience found themselves. They were contemplating to leave Christ, but he took upon himself to teach them about the excellencies found in the priesthood of Christ. He said, I will do that if God permits. So he acknowledged God, that everything he wants to do, God is sovereign over it. James shared the same idea. Paul also shared the same idea. James 4, 13, 15 Come now, you say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little while and then vanishes. Instead, you are to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Paul said the same thing in 1 Corinthians 16 and 7. Verse 7, for I do not want to see you now just in passing. I hope to spend some time with you if the Lord permits. So this little verse teaches us the sovereignty of God, reliance on God, but also the author of Hebrew kind of put himself in the bunch. This we will do to kind of show his humility. Now we get to Hebrews 6 verse 4. Remember the, 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 the little outline I gave you earlier? Four to eight is the warning against apostasy. And nine, ten, the hope or the assurance and promises for the believer. So let's read this. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away to restore them again to repentance, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him to content. This passage is, is one of the, like I said before, controversial um, ones. Um, yeah, it's sometimes scholars, men who like study like PhD, with PhD, like they, they do like, I don't know, what is the highest level of study in seminary? I don't know. But they stumble on, on this passage. It's one of the most misunderstood passages of the Bible, but it is very terrifying. It's a warning Incredibly severe, even frightening, because he's using the word impossible. What is impossible? It is impossible in the case of those who have done all these things, verse 6, to restore them again to repentance. So there is an impossibility to be restored to repentance. That is terrifying. Because repentance is the way, it's the mean by which we come to God. Repent and believe in God and you will be saved, right? But there is a place in life when someone reaches that threshold, it is impossible for them to be saved. This passage, like Hebrews 10, verse 26 to 31, is often debated, referenced, quoted, studied, misunderstood. Because, like I said, many scholars and big figures, they take this passage to mean different things. It creates confusion for many. I'm not saying the Word of God is confusing. I'm saying um, people with their misunderstanding create confusion. Because God is not the author of confusion. He said, his word is 
a lamp to our feet, and a light to our path. Before I get to the text, maybe, I don't know, we'll see. I wanted to present to you six different views on this passage. And the most common one um, is the loss of salvation. Someone can, a Christian, a genuine Christian can lose their salvation. And we're going to see how we can um, argue against those views. Thomas Schreiner produced a little paper, Perseverance and Assurance, a survey and a proposal. He goes into this and he says, there are those views. And I think 2010, he present one more. So we have six views here that I took from, from his work, this Perseverance and Assurance. The first one, the loss of salvation view. The second one, the loss of reward view. Third one, test of genuineness of conversion view. Fourth one, hypothetical view. Fifth one, irresolvable tension view. And the last one, the means of salvation view. So, let's look at the first one. The loss of salvation view. Some argues that the warning are addressed to believers. They say a believer can be saved, and at, some, at a certain point in time, they're no longer saved. Believer can and do abandon their salvation. We have John Wesley. Actually, we sung a, we sung a song earlier by Charles Wesley. Um, that's his brother. We have John Wesley. We have Dale Moody from the Southern Baptist Circle. They hold to that view. And they say, you can lose your salvation. You can no longer be saved. John Wesley kind of present a, a work on Romans 8, verse 29 and 30, what we call the golden chain of salvation. Um, those whom, whom he foreknew, he predestined. Verse 30 said, those he predestined, he also called. And those whom he, whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. So he says, like, somewhere in your life, you might do something and you break that golden chain of salvation and you no longer be glorified. He says, um, I read um, this from Schreiner, John Wesley insists that election and predestination are not ultimate. For both election and predestination are conditional and can be overturned by lack of perseverance because man has this responsibility to continue to the end, but somewhere in his walk may decide to give up. You know, that's pure Arminianism, right? Like, what is Arminianism at the core? Simply put, is that man has a free will, and with that free will, man can choose to be saved. And if they choose not to be saved, if they mess up the plan, then they can no longer be saved. Arminianism says men has this little good spark in themselves, so to speak. Like you have this goodness in you that caused you to choose God, that caused you to um, confess faith in Christ and accept Christ as your Savior. But Wesley is saying that at some point in your life, you can mess up the plan of God for salvation. So, but you have to define, what is salvation? Salvation is, is true of a person who is, is what is true of a person who is truly saved. We have some pillar of salvation, but I'm going to take two. 
Someone who is saved is someone who is born again. We all agree, right? Someone who is saved is justified. We all agree, right? So they are saying, like, you mess up the plan of God, and somehow you become unborn again or unregenerate. You are a new creation, but then you, you, are, you, you go back to the old creation, I guess. Um, so that's what's wrong with this view. It's like man has a free will, and that free will can mess up the plan of God. Can you imagine? Isaiah said, who has an arm like God who can thwart? I think I get this word right. Thwart, T-H-W-A-R-T. Who can oppose the arm of God? Like God told Job, do you have a voice like God that can thunder? I mean, men, can, you, can any of you thunder with your voice? I don't know. Maybe, I don't know, some Brother Jason, sometimes he sings really loud, maybe. That's as much you can get. But no, no one can oppose his plan. He said, I declare the end from the beginning. He said, Beside me, besides me, there is no God. Someone with that free will of theirs needs to be bigger than God. So that's the loss of salvation view. The second one, the loss of reward view. This one say that this one, um, you do not have to persevere. You do not, you do not have to, go, to do good works to be certain of salvation. This view is a little different from the first one because they kind of understand passages like John 6, 37 to 44. Christ said, says, I will give them eternal life. Um, John 10, 20, 30, um, the good shepherd, Christ says, um, those who come to him, right? They hear his voice and um, his sheep come to him. Romans 8, 28 to 39, the golden chain of salvation. What can separate us from the love of God? Um, Philippians 1, 6. So they agree that no believer will fail to have eternal life. They say that all those who believe in Christ will be saved and they have a guarantee to heaven. But those, this group, this camp, as soon as you start talking about works, they retaliate. Any mention of work for them is an attack to the justifying work of the gospel. They say if salvation is truly by grace through faith, then works can play some type of role in your salvation. So don't talk to me about works. I'm saved by grace, no work. If you start talking about works, oh, you legalist. So as soon as you introduce works, you are reintroducing legalism in the church, so they say. That means someone can claim to be a Christian and live however he wants, shows no victory over sin, and yet still be saved. This is what we call the easy believism. You say this prayer when you were little? Did you, did you say it with all your heart? Were you sincere? Then you are saved. Proponents of this view, we have Charles, Charles Stanley. He wrote a book called Eternal Security. Can you be sure? Another one is Zane C. Hodges. And the last person I want to mention is R.T. Kendall. I think he's still alive. He's probably in his 80s. But you guys know who he is? R.T. Kendall took over the pulpit after Lloyd Jones. Lloyd Jones was sick with a throat cancer. He had to step down. And R.T. Kendall uh, took over uh, ministry 
I think the church is Westminster Chapel. And he pastored that church for 25 years. But this is, listen to what he says. According to Kendall, the person who has become a Christian will go to heaven when he dies, no matter what work or lack of work may accompany such a faith. Kendall asks, what if a person who is saved falls into sin, stays in sins, and is found in that very condition when he dies? Will he still go to heaven? He answers, yes. He concludes this way. I therefore state categorically that the person who is saved, who confess that Jesus is Lord and believe in his heart that God raised him from the dead, will go to heaven when he dies, no matter what work or lack of work may accompany his faith. Do you see how dangerous this is? What does God say in his word? This is basically taking um, an attack to the word of God. We have all the promises in in the Old Testament about the new covenant. God says, Ezekiel 36, and I will put my, verse 27, I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Those are good works. So you're saying, I don't need those. Um, Ezekiel, Ezekiel eleven nineteen. I will give them one heart and a new spirit I will put within them. I will remove the heart of, of stone from their flesh and give them a heart of flesh. Jeremiah 24, 7. I will give them a heart to know that I am the Lord and they shall be my people and I will be their God for they shall return to me with the whole heart. Jeremiah 32, 40, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they, that they may not turn from me. Those are the promises of the old covenant that God will cause you to walk in his statutes. This goes back to the doctrine of Regeneration. If you, hold, if you hold to this view, it's like it's either you are truly regenerate and you're showing fruits and God is truthful. Or if you are truly saved but not able to bear fruit, that implies God is a liar because he could not keep his word. Far be it from God. God is not a man that he should lie, or a son of man, that he should change his mind, Numbers 23, 19. And they introduced this um, doctrine to like, you have greater security in, in God. You don't have to do anything. You, you, you're safe. Sit back, relax. Get a popcorn, watch the movie. Let's cruise. God said, says in Ephesians 2, 8 to 10, he prepared works, when? Before the foundation of the world so that we can walk in them. But they say, no, 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 no. So why this is called the loss of reward view? Because they're saying all these things in this passage, it's not really falling away. It's, you know, some of our works will be burned up and you lost your reward. That's how they think falling away in this passage. That's why they, 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 they view it. All right. The third view, test of genuineness of conversion Schreiner says again, uh, this view agrees with the previous one in a sense that um, if a believer is saved, he can not lose his salvation. And those who are predestined will be ultimately glorified. So the chain cannot be broken. 
all of God's people will be saved. And his promises are inviolable. You cannot violate the promises of God. So no one who is genuinely part of the people of God will ever be lost. But the difference between the third view and the second view is that you have perseverance in the faith and you have to have good works that are considered necessary for salvation. The good works doesn't earn your salvation, but they are necessary evidence that you have salvation. Same idea we have in James 1. Faith without works is dead. But this view basically saying that we are dealing with people that were not genuinely saved. They look like Christians, but they, felt, they fall away. Oh, therefore, you can conclude that they were never Christians. This is what we have in John, 1 John 2.19. They, they, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us. But they went out. That it might be complained that they all are not of us. Shriner kind of say he holds to that view, but with a caveat. Um, because um, the people who hold to that view, uh, John Owen, Roger Nicole, he says Wayne Grudem, they're saying that it's kind of a retrospection. It's kind of you looking back, or you, you test other people, not yourself. I have read some of the Grudem stuff while I was preparing this, but I didn't see that claim that Grudem was saying um, it's for those. I mean, there is an idea. When you look at the pronouns in the, in the passage, there is the them and those and they versus you kind of making that difference. But Grudem make a, make, make a good point. It's like um, all this applies to some degree to describe what is salvation. So Shriner says he holds to the same view with the caveat that he's saying that they are saying um, it applies to you. You can test someone else's, not yourself. Which I don't see with Grudem, but that's what he says. The fourth view is what they call the hypothetical view. It's just theory. Since someone who is saved can never lose their salvation, therefore, their salvation, so therefore, it's not, it's just in theory. This is what could happen to you if you would lose your salvation, but since you cannot lose your salvation, just for FYI. So, the idea is, this doesn't apply to you and me. Because we see this and like, okay. I, can, I cannot lose my salvation. Even though like my life kind of fits the description and I, I'm going in a way that is dangerous and, and there is warning. But in theory, I cannot lose my salvation. So therefore, this warning is not for me. So imagine... Kind of think of some of the events that happen in our church. Someone divorcing their spouse on no biblical basis, and they say, for the glory of God alone. That's blasphemy. And yeah, I'm a Christian. This doesn't apply to me. It's hypothetical. What does this? This removes the fear of God in the person. Since I'm saved, I'm okay. The word of God says, danger, danger, danger. Ah, that's not for me. God says, to this I will hear, the one who fear at my word. 
we must fear at God's word. Number five, the fifth view, the irresolvable tension view. Shriner says this, the advantage of this view is that neither the warnings, neither the promises are toned down. What does that mean? They are allowed to function side by side, but the logical relationship between them is just acknowledgement and it's mysterious. It's like, there's the warning, you can take it for yourself. It's the word of God, appreciate it. There is the promises, assurance, take it for you, but there is no link. It's like, you know, like sometimes we say, we cannot explain the Trinity, it's mysterious. When we get in heaven, we will understand. So it's the same idea. It's like the warning, we don't understand how it relates to the promises. So it's just, we can't, there's a tension and we cannot resolve it. The two coexist, but there is a mystery between them. And logically, there is no real relationship. And the last view which Schreiner presents, and he says that this is the one he holds to. And he says this, this is the interpretation, interpretation I support. I call it the means of salvation view. To summarize it, I believe that those who are elect, called, and justified will certainly be glorified. No genuine believer will ever be apostatized. Nonetheless, the warning the warning passages in scriptures, they are addressed to believers. He says, the warning is for you and me. Yes, we, not, we know that we cannot lose our salvation, but also those warnings, like, they are for us. We need to take heed. Nonetheless, the warnings in the passage of scripture are addressed to believers, and they are threatened with eternal destruction, not a loss of rewards in the case they were to commit apostasy. He says, I do not adhere to the mystery view either because in this instance, since the notions that the believer will never fall away and also may possibly fall away cannot be both true. He said, I do not adhere to the hypothetical view because we must pay, heed, pay attention and heed to the warnings in order to be saved on the day of the Lord. And he differs from Gurdon because we're not looking at others, but we're also looking at ourselves. So, I think this view is kind of the best. I think Pastor Tim kind of holds to the same view. This warning is real. And people kind of create these different categories because does it apply to you or does it not? And based on those categories, you have all these views. It's for the believers. Okay, therefore, is it um, hypothetical? Is it for me to observe now? Or it's not for the believers. It's for those who are perishing, so I don't have to worry about it. So, um, so that's what's, what's behind all these views. And... View number six, the means of salvation view, meaning that it's a mean for us Christians to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that God is the one working in us. Because verse six says they fall away. It's, it's actual people. They actually fell away. We saw that in previous chapters and verses, um, Hebrews 3, verse 12. Take care, brother. Another warning. Take care, brothers, lest there be in you, in any of you, an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Say, so be careful not having an evil heart causing you to fall away from the living God. We saw that again, if you flip back in chapter 2, verse 1. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away. 
you are going away from God. The difference be- between 2, 1, and 3, 12, and what we have here in chapter 6, those were the warning. In 6, it actually happened. It says, in the case of those, there is a case. Some people, this really happened to them. Back in chapter 3, we, we have this example. The author used that example to tell them, do not do like your fathers in the wilderness when they were following Moses. They couldn't make it to the rest of God, but they forfeited the promised land. They all fell away. God says, the way to come to me is repentance. But the, this verse says, repentance cannot be found for such a person. It's impossible. So going back to what I said earlier, you have reached a point in your life where you can no longer return. You have put the Son of God to open shame. It's like you you like the demons who fell. Like they sin once and boom, they're damned forever. They were just waiting the day of judgment to be cast into hell. So you reach that point of no return. It doesn't say like that God is not able to save them. It says that they will not be able to find repentance. What is repentance? Change of mind, change of heart. The author says, beware of a unbelieving heart, a hardened heart. So the opposite of a changing heart, a repenting heart, is a hard heart. Hard heart. I get it right. So you, you reach a point of hardness that you can no longer return. That's the danger. And when we need to hear this and pay close attention. You are in the realm of the unsavable. You know, like in Romans 1, those whom God gave up to the loss of the heart, God gave, him, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. God gave them up to debased mind. They reach this point of sinfulness that they cannot come back. We need to fear, brethren, not a morbid fear. Oh, I'm going to lose my salvation. This is talking about, no, fear of God, a righteous fear of God, a good fear, not to fall into sin, not to put Christ to open uh, shame. Because we know that God is the one who undergird our salvation, who preserves us, who keeps us. Like Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, knowing that God is the one working within you. I want to go to the text now, but I think I'm going to stop just to leave you with this, to think about the warnings and see why people can come to this text and say, this is talking about a Christian. Because all these things here, they're Christian-like stuff. But I want to prove you maybe next time that not necessarily. Same thing with verse 1 and 2. We saw they were not really Christian um, principles. So here also we're going to see the same thing. Verse 4, chapter 6. For it is impossible in the case of those. So there is a case. And this needs to be contrasted with... uh, Verse 9, though we speak in this way, yet in your case. So these two cases, so we will see that. For it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened. They have been enlightened. Would you say that Christian, we receive light, right? The light of the word of God. Paul, he prayed for the Christian. He says in uh, Ephesians 1, 18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, 
that you may know what is the hope to which to, um, God has called you. So there is this idea, Christian, they receive light. They are, um, we, we, we see the glory of, of, of God in the face of Jesus Christ. There is this light that shines um, upon our, our life. Yeah, 2 Corinthians 4, 4. The God of this world keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. If you're a Christian, you have seen, you have come to the light. The other word we can see here, uh, still in verse 4. Who have tasted the heavenly gift. They taste the gift. It's a heavenly gift. Paul says in 2 Corinthians 9, for the Christian, thanks to God, thanks be to God for this inexpressible gift, the gift of salvation, the gift of righteousness. So there's this gift that the Christian really receive. We receive the grace of God. It's a gift from God. We read in Ephesians 2, right? The gift of Christ, the gift of eternal life. I give them eternal life, Christ says. It's a gift. The Christian receive gifts from God. Romans 3.24. We are justified by grace. Grace is a gift. So Christians are definitely partakers of the free, grace of, the free gifts of Christ. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, gifts, lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So we see light, we see gift. Next he says, they have shared in the Holy Spirit. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, the Holy, Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the guarantee of our salvation. In him, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believe in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So we receive Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit when we hear the word of God. God sealed us. So that we can be saved. So all these kind of, it's Christian lingo. We, that's why people come here and they stumble. Last one, the word. Verse 5, and have tasted the goodness of the word of God. Taste the word of God. Don't you guys Taste the word of God the moment you became a Christian. Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 23, Since you have been born again, not with perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. Jesus said, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. Jesus said, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples. Man shall live by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The next one, the powers of the age to come. I have this book of end of time. Um, I like the, the way Samuel E. Waldron, he kind of defined the, end of the, the powers of the age to come. He says here, the term powers used here is one of the technical terms in the New Testament for miracles. It's basically those people, they witness miracles. They probably perform them themselves. Thus, the reference here is to the miraculous sign, gifts, that accompanied the preaching of the gospel at the beginning of the gospel age. The sign gifts announced the coming of the kingdom of God and the breaking in the age to come. 
there is then in the presence of these signs an announcement of the inauguration of the age to come. So it's like miracle. They witness that. They see all that. And yet there is an aspect. Those people, they were not true Christian. Grudem says they were almost Christian in his view. I remember um, my conversion. The Lord used hard to believe. I have it here. One of the chapter to show me I was almost Christian. He uses uh, John Mark Arthur. His, I, I love this brother, even though I don't like his end of time theology, but he was teaching on uh, Matthew 7, the two men building, right? And the way he explains it, just like, that's me. And if I don't change my ways, if I don't turn to God, I will perish. So this is what he says. Uh, Let me start from hard to believe, chapter 7, the rock of truth. So he takes the example of the two men, one building on the sand, the other one building on the rock. And one is a Christian, one is not. Several interesting similarities exist between the two builders in this parable. First of all, they both build houses representing spiritual structures. So they were both involved in living their lives with the priority of spiritual activity that had to do with the kingdom of God. So he says these two men, they're building house. So spiritually speaking, it's spiritual, uh, things we do for the kingdom of God. Secondly, they probably built their house in the same place because the same storm hit them. True believers and false believers invariably live side by side. They are on the same block, same street. They may attend the same church. They may listen to the same preacher, go to the same Bible studies, and be so similar that they are not distinguishable to most people. Third, they apparently build the house with the similar outward style because the only difference the Lord mentioned was the foundation. Both people may carry a Bible and a notebook. They pray the prayers, same prayer meetings, and, they, and take part in church activities. They may give similar amounts of money to the Lord. They both look like Christians until you come to the real crux of the matter. And that's the invisible foundation down at the bottom of everything. And only an honest and careful soul-searching self-examination can reveal the truth concerning that hidden reality. So he's saying, all these, they, they look like Christian activities or Christian experience. But... Someone is not real. Their foundation is sin. And when it comes time to judge their work, one will stand and one will fall. That's what happened here. Some of them fell away. Next time, we're going to get into more of the verse and see how we can take this warning for ourselves. And move on to what is more sure and to persevere until the end. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is truth. Your word is a double-edged sword that pierced through the bone and marrow. Lord, thank you for this truth of, from your word. We want to take heed. We want to fear you, a righteous fear. Jesus said to feel the one that can cast both the soul and body into hell. We don't want to be relaxed. We don't want to be uh, slothful, Lord. 
We want to take heed to your word. We want to trust in you. Help us, Lord, to trust in you to the uttermost.